Welcome to Jacobin Friends. I'm Anna Kasparian, joined by my lovely co-host Nando Vila. And we're about to have uh, a, a giant show for you. Um, obviously, we're going to touch heavily on what's happening in Israel um, and the violence against Palestinians in Gaza and East Jerusalem. Nando, there's just there's so much. And, you know, we have our decode segments as well. But to be quite honest with you, I just want to talk about Israel. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. um, it's horrifying. Um, it's um, you know, it's the peep show meme uh, over and over again. Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? Because um, this is just unspeakable violence that is fully supported, funded, um, and encouraged by our government in the United States, um, and 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 frankly, a, a huge chunk of like the media. Uh, sector is just fully supportive of it uh just you know obviously the right wing is like you know this that insane brett stevens column um where he was like you know for the sake of peace israel needs to wipe hamas off the face of the earth you know and and, um but even like even like democratic politicians nancy pelosi uh you know fully supportive of of what israel is doing um very 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 just it's horrifying and the feeling of impotence that we have because we just have no no way of – it just feels like we have no way of, of stopping this, that they're, they're, they just like have total impunity. I mean they just bombed a building where that housed the AP and Al Jazeera. I'm not saying that like those people are better than, you know, Palestinian children who get murdered on the regular, but like it just shows the brazenness and the impunity, the sense of impunity that they feel. Um that they can just do that and mm-hmm. no one's going to do anything about it because no one's going to do anything about it. So. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because um, you mentioned the U.S. media's coverage of uh, the ongoing conflict, you know, throughout decades and how it's, it's very much been a one-sided perspective uh, that makes it appear as though it's just simply Israel uh, that's under attack, that the rocket fire coming from Hamas is completely unprovoked. But considering mm-hmm. what happened to that building today uh, that, you know, housed uh, international journalists from the Associated Press, from Al Jazeera, I wonder if the journalists are starting to rethink uh, the one-sidedness of their coverage because now they're witnessing uh, what's been taking place for decades firsthand and what happened with the bombing or with the um, airstrike against that building uh, is a war crime. It just simply is a war crime. There's no... There's no, you know, question about it. And and one thing that I wanted to just mention quickly before I give you more details about what happened today. Um, you know, it's for the longest time, all we would get was this like both sides kind of perspective from from what we would even consider like good faith actors. But now yeah. for the first time, I'm seeing testimony on the House floor about the asymmetrical nature of this, right? The fact that there's a power disparity, the fact that Mm -hmm. you don't have two sides on equal footing in this conflict, 
And that's important because I'm, I'm also seeing a shift in public opinion in the United States on that ongoing conflict. And so I don't know if this is going to change anything. I don't know if it's going to make the situation any better for the Palestinians. But the facts on the ground are the facts on the ground. And we can't bury it. We got to tell the truth about it. So let's talk a little more about that building. Um, as Nando mentioned, Israeli airstrikes destroyed a high-rise building in Gaza um, that several media outlets operated out of, including the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. The CEO and president of the Associated Press has released a statement about this, and uh, his name is Gary Pruitt, and he says this. We are shocked and horrified that the Israeli military would target and destroy the building housing AP's bureau and other news organizations in Gaza. They have long known the location of our bureau, and new journalists were there. We received a warning that the building would be hit. This is an incredibly disturbing development. We narrowly avoided a terrible loss of life. A dozen mm. AP journalists and freelancers were inside the building, and thankfully, we were able to evacuate them in time. And he ends by saying, the world will know less about what's happening in Gaza because of what happened today. And Nando, like that last statement, I, I found to be the most interesting because I think that there's a lot of detail that's been intentionally suppressed in the media in places like the Associated Press. I would never wish harm on any of these journalists. And as I mentioned earlier, what uh, the Israeli military did here is a war crime. Uh, but for the longest time, you know, especially Western media, they have gone out of their way to make it seem as though this was uh, an equal conflict with two sides on equal footing, as if there, there's no asymmetrical nature to um, yeah. all, any of it, you know? Well, the other, the other line that you see, I mean, Jon Stewart even took this line forever, which is like, listen, man, these people, this is like a really complex issue. They've been at it for thousands of years, you know, like it, we're not going to solve it overnight. And, you know, it's really difficult to understand you. Like there was a, a, a tweet that went viral of some, some guys like I'm a PhD in Middle Eastern studies and I'm refraining from, from, from talking about this. Maybe you should consider uh, that as well. And it's like, it's not, it's, you know, the Michael Brooks clip that went viral again, uh, this we have week it. of him saying it's, it's not that complicated, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's worth watching cause it's, it's really not that complicated, <laughs> you know, well, but that, we that, have that, that clip. Yeah, yeah, let's play it. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's play it because I think that he did such a great job in just summarizing the reality of how this is not that complicated. Let's watch. So it's not a complex issue. That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East backed by the United States, it acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship, period. And just as like a thought experiment, IDW people, if we know that if somehow a population of Jewish refugees ended up in West Bank in Gaza and an Arabic government in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv had an open air prison in, in what, you know, Jewish Gaza, which they bombed with white phosphorus, they killed civilians indiscriminately, and they had no uh, provisions for medicine. They had an embargo that blocked food, that the electricity wasn't running, that there was an over 48% unemployment rate, life expectancy and malnutrition statistics were horrifying. The, uh, one of the major uh, policymakers in this hypothetical Arabic-Palestinian state said, we need to put those Jews on a diet. In the West Bank, there was another Jewish area where there was a little bit more autonomy, but 
There was regular Arabic settlements where they pulled up the Jewish farmers' foods. They terrorized them with rocks. The security forces broke children's bones, and they couldn't drive their own roads. We'd all have no problem understanding what that was. He's right. I mean, he was yeah. right. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because the, the Israeli military, the IDF, they uh, justify the bombing of any building in Gaza, uh, saying that there are, well, you know, that there's Hamas, it's like Hamas headquarters or their Hamas offices there, and like you know, the idea that the AP and Al Jazeera would share a building with like you know Hamas HQ, where like <laughs> um, is just laughable on its face. Like I joke tweeted this morning, you know. Uh, like imagining like an AP journalist uh, meeting a Hamas militant in the lobby of the building that they both work at and be like, Hey man, did you catch the, did you catch the, you know, John Oliver last night? It was pretty crazy. Um, you know, because like, it's like, obviously this, like it's, you have to be like the most gullible, dumbest person on the planet to actually believe any of that. Um, and you know, it makes me think that, I mean, maybe they did bomb this building precisely because it was media because precisely because they don't want to you know coverage of what's coming out of gaza especially from al jazeera obviously um and i think it speaks to like my my diminished expectations of of this kind of thing that i'm I'm, i was i was surprised by the forcefulness of the ap's statement um like Mm -hmm. i half expected the them to be like something like uh you know obviously we defend you know we israel has every right (laughs) to defend yeah israel has its right to defend itself yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. but we condemn the building of this the bombing of this like specific building uh you know but everything else is fine but uh yeah i mean it's it's just it's you know what what more what more can be said i mean what what can really be said about this i mean it's just it's just so it's so horrifying, not just that it's happening, that it's done in our name, that um, that the that the the sort of dominant hegemonic line is so so obviously distorted, you know, so yeah. obviously distorted, and um, and then and that like just the small attempts to to push back against that are met with like unbelievable resistance, obviously, but it does feel like it is breaking through somewhat, like. I don't know. I remember when the the last time that there was a lot of uh, you know violence in, in that part of the world in 2014. I mean, obviously there's ongoing violence, and every single day is a is a catastrophe. But um, in 2014, when there was a flare up, I mean, it didn't feel like now. It didn't feel like this. Um, oh no, the the response you know, you by Americans well. yeah. was so yeah. different. I mean, I remember that was when. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Dave Rubin was still working at TYT, and there was an hour-long panel on the conflict in in Israel. And, um, you know, at that point, the Israeli military was bombing hospitals, bombing schools, and uh, Dave Rubin, who was very, like, defensive of what Israel was doing, was asked— you know, even if there's evidence that Hamas is, um, you know, hiding out in a school, but you have all these children there, are you really okay with the Israeli military yeah. bombing that school, knowing that innocent Palestinian children are going to die? And he was in favor of it. And then later he asked yeah. us to edit out that part because he was embarrassed by it. And he should be embarrassed by it because it's morally reprehensible. It's disgusting. And, yeah. I, you know, we got to get to our decode segments, but before we do, I leave you with um, just a small excerpt from Bernie Sanders's uh, op-ed in the New York Times. Please read it. I think it was a powerful piece, um, and to be quite honest with you, I'm surprised that the New York Times published it. Uh, but he writes this: In the Middle East, 
where we provide nearly $4 billion a year in aid to Israel, we can no longer be apologists for the right-wing Netanyahu government and its undemocratic and racist behavior. We must change course and adopt an even-handed approach, one that upholds and strengthens international law regarding the protection of civilians, as well as existing U.S. law, holding that the provision of U.S. military aid must not enable human rights abuses." And uh, he was called a self-hating Jew by Alan Dershowitz uh, for publishing that. But um, if you're concerned about how Alan Dershowitz thinks of you or thinks of anyone, um, I would recommend you look into Alan Dershowitz, uh, who (laughs) was very good friends with Jeffrey Epstein and uh, tried to make the case that having sex with minors is okay in an actual published op-ed. That's who Alan Dershowitz is. It's absolute garbage. Anyway... um, so, Nando, why don't we uh, give Verso a quick shout out and we'll get to our deep yes. segments. Yes, absolutely. You know, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag. For as long as you are a subscriber, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in May, you'll get these four books. The Last Man Takes LSD, Foucault, and the End of Revolution by Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora. White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective. Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization by Rodrigo Nunes. And Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel by Dominique Ede. That kind of sounds All like right. being John Malkovich, but like being Edward Said, like being an inside Edward Said's head. Yeah, those um, those titles are provocative. I like it. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, I also wanted to let our audience know that for our interview today, we're going to be talking to Amira Haas, who's a journalist, I believe, based in the West Bank. Uh, so we're not done discussing Israel. That's what um, a huge portion of the show will be dedicated to. But for now, uh, we're going to talk about a few other topics in our Decode segments. I'm going to talk about motherhood. I'm not a mother, uh, but I have some thoughts on it. <laughs> so let's get to it. Elizabeth Brunig's column on motherhood was all the rage on Mother's Day or Mother's Day weekend. And by that, I mean it evoked all the rage from blue check mark liberals on Twitter, some of whom literally get paid to be arbiters of gender equality and feminism. But when it came to the perspective of Brunig on motherhood, they certainly wanted to cancel it. Now, the headline for this op-ed was, I became a mother at 25, and I'm not sorry I didn't wait. And so, in my opinion, true feminism believes in equality for all. It, it, it celebrates f- the freedom of women to make choices in their lives. Elizabeth Brunig made the decision to be a young mother, young by today's standards. And one person who seemed to be um, against that was Amanda Marcotte, who actually admitted that she didn't even read the piece. She says, I would like to thank this headline slash byline combo for helping me set a record for the quickest gross pass I've ever uttered in my life. The funniest part is framing 25 like it's some daringly young age. The average age of first childbirth is 26. She's actually not quite right about that, which isn't rare for Marcotte these days. Um, the average age at first birth in the United States right now is 27, up substantially from 23 in 2010. Marcotte also says, if you want to take, um, 
If you want a take on this issue that is smart and isn't naked pandering to the fantasies of pathetic men, I recommend Jill Filipovich and uh, her newsletter. Unlike anything Brunig writes, Jill actually respects women. So in other words, if a woman decides to do something that Marcotte or Jill happen to be against, well, then that life decision doesn't matter. I mean, that's true feminism right there. And how is making a decision in your personal life to have children at a young age? 25 is an adult, right? But how is that pandering to the fantasies of pathetic men? I mean, it's just ridiculous. And maybe before you have a strong take like that, you should just take a moment to read what the op-ed has to say. Because to be clear, Brunig brings up incredibly important points and a comparative analysis of the United States versus Nordic countries, where it's actually far more pleasant to be a parent. Pitting women um, with different perspectives against one another is not my definition of great feminism. Now, Jude Ellison S. Doyle, who I actually had the pleasure of not knowing the existence of uh, before this, tweeted this, Happy Mother's Day to Elizabeth Stoker Brunig, the only person ever to have given birth. And then Rasha Al-Akidi, that title literally does not make me want to read it as a female who lived the majority of my life in a society that tried to convince me being an obeying wife and mother at 25 is all I should aim for in life. That's also a hilarious thread. Don't worry, Brunick has blocked me. Again, maybe read the piece before you have these strong thoughts. And the most vicious response came again from Jude Ellison S. Doyle, who said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing this woman it was a tremendous personal achievement to be repeatedly knocked up by an internet troll she met in high school. And of course, she's referring to Matt Brunig there. I mean, these blue checkmark liberals seem to be pretty vicious toward the Brunigs. Um, it's, it's almost as if there's an entire cottage industry around it. Now, in reality, though, I, I think that there's an important takeaway from Brunig's piece, which I want to dedicate my Decode segment on. Brunig's column was about her experience and her perspective on motherhood, which seems to be condemned by the very, you know, paid gender hustlers who just happen to have a different personal life experience or perspective. But more importantly, anyone who bothered to actually read Brunick's thoughtful piece could see that she raises relevant points about why it's so difficult to be a mother in the United States. So she writes that the case for young motherhood would be simpler to plead if it weren't for that particular back and forth. Snowflakes this, boomers that. Millennials stand accused of immaturity and selfishness selfishness of lack uh, of lack of lacking the grit and co uh, commitment to bring up children who I gather get in the way of avocado toast and grapefruit mimosas. She also says that as a rule, as a rule, having and raising children is never easy. This is especially true in the United States, where compared with similarly developed countries, parents enjoy relatively little support. And that's absolutely true. We're seeing that play out in real time where women in their childbearing age, for lack of a better way to describe it, are deciding to not have children because they don't feel they can afford it. They're drowning in student loan debt. They can't afford to buy a home. They can't afford to do very simple things that their families, their parents were able to do um, in the generations before them. And it's also worth uh, noting that Brunig writes that young people are hesitant to start their families because of legitimate worries about money and stability. Pretty important point to bring up. 
And finally, one more excerpt from Brunig. She writes, when surveyed, most young people report that they elected to put off having kids because they wanted to make money first because of the high cost of childcare and the burden of student debt. Others cite the price of housing, political instability, and fear of a changing climate. And you know, it felt really good to, to read someone in the New York Times who understood me. Brunig has children. I don't have children. But to see her cite the list of worries that someone like me has felt good. It felt like, finally, I'm being represented in, in one of these op-eds when it comes to children. Because lately, all we've been seeing in um, you know legacy media outlets is the fact that in the United States, the birth rate has been declining since the 1960s significantly. Six years in a row, uh, the birth rate has declined significantly. And in 2020, thanks to the pandemic and the fact that less women are willing to have children, the population in the United States decreased. But there's never really a robust discussion or explanation as to why that's the case. And one other thing that Brunig does that I think is important is she compares the United States to Nordic countries that are far more generous in their social safety net, far more supportive of new mothers, and make it easier to raise a family if you choose to raise one. Now, um, Mark Lino writes that, uh, you know, in the USDA, that middle-income married couple parents of a child born in 2020 may expect to spend about $284,570 if projected inflation costs are factored in for food, shelter, and other necessities to raise a child through age 17. This does not, by the way, include the cost of a college education. In fact, when you do factor in the cost of a college education... The cost of raising a child is nauseating. Let's watch. $1.7 million. $1.7 million. We looked at the town and country archives are an amazing thing. And in 1978, we did a story called From Birth to B.A., how much it costs to raise. It was a young woman that we focused on. The price tag then, 1978, was $300,000. Today, we tallied it up and it was over 1.7 million. And that includes uh, after school classes, training or coaching to take the SAT, all these, you know, programs that are associated with education uh, that, you know, are meant to get children to the the highest echelons of Ivy League academia. Um, So it's important to mention that because not every parent can afford and not every parent spends that kind of money on getting their children to elite colleges and universities. Um, But it is incredibly expensive, as you know, uh, because we're grappling with trillions of dollars of student loan debt right now. I believe the number is up to $1.5 trillion of outstanding student loans. But in places like Finland, you don't have that problem. Education is free. In fact, public school uh, dominates because uh, fairly recently, Finland decided to outlaw uh, and ban private education, forcing wealthier families to be more invested in public education, thus funding and supporting public education far more than they did before. With that said, Brunick mentions Nordic countries, um, and I'm assuming she's referring to places like Finland, when she talks about how the U.S., 
places nearly all of the burden of child care costs onto families. The American model is distinct uh, and far worse than the Nordic model, where parents spend very little money in out-of-pocket costs during maternity, childbirth, and child care. Finland happens to be one of the best places in the world to give birth, and this video will explain why. We have uh, all kinds of benefits. We have uh, benefits for children, benefits for illnesses and uh, pensions. In 2019, Finland gave out 9.3 million euros worth of maternity grants. Thanks to Kela and higher taxes, childbirth costs are totally covered for Finnish residents. New parents may expect to pay for the hospital room out of pocket, but that's usually it. When you go give birth, it's almost free. We stayed in the hospital for three days, three full days. As a family, we had our own family room and we got like meals and support and help and everything. And the bill was about 300 euros in the end, you know, for the whole. It's basically like living in a hotel. It's basically like living in a hotel. And obviously she wasn't burdened by the insane astronomical costs of just giving birth. In the United States, though, the situation is very different, and it's it varies depending on a number of different factors. And so let's take a look at what the average American can expect in costs when it comes to just giving birth in a hospital. I called the insurance company to get like a quote or an estimate. It was really hard to like get a number. They told me to call the hospital and just kind of went down a rabbit hole. So I didn't really have an idea, and I expected a lot more. Dr. Michelle Moniz co-authored a 2020 study about the out-of-pocket costs for childbirth in the U.S. In this study, we found that women's out-of-pocket costs for maternity care are rising over time from approximately $3,000 at the beginning of the study period to about $4,500. It can be very difficult for patients to predict beforehand what they might be on the hook for in terms of costs. One really important finding in this study was that it's the deductibles. Deductibles are getting higher, meaning people are required to pay more out of pocket before insurance kicks in. So even though the cost of birth has plateaued, the out-of-pocket costs are on the rise. And guess what? Parents in the United States don't get much help postpartum either. So the mother gives birth in the hospital, in some cases gets slapped with astronomical hospital bills if they have a high deductible. And then as they're leaving the hospital, what do they get in support? So what do parents in the U.S. get postpartum? A hat and a blanket. <laughs> that was it, a hat and a blanket. You get all advice, you get phone numbers you can call as far as lactation consultants and nurses that can help. They gave me some like baby products and maternity care products. And the nurses are pretty liberal with like giving me as much as I want to take home. I think I didn't get anything the second time because I was not at the hospital very long. The first time I recall distinctly getting the squeeze bottle and the extra mesh underwear. But in Finland, the situation is actually very different. New parents are given what's referred to as baby boxes full of supplies that are so luxurious that they'll make the swag bag at the Oscars look like a complete and utter joke. Let's watch. Today's baby box has 63 items for both the baby and parents. New parents can take the box or a 170 euro stipend. About 95% of first-time mothers choose the box. 
but the contents of the box are worth much more than 170 euros. Because of the fact that there are companies competing with one another to include their stuff in that box, oftentimes, um, or or all the time, those uh, baby boxes are just equipped with really great quality stuff, whether it's clothing, baby bottles, things that the mother would need in order to help her in her motherhood. I mean, after giving birth, I mean, think about how incredible that is. Whereas in the United States, it really depends on which hospital you gave birth in. It depends on what kind of health insurance you have. There's no fancy baby box and all you get is a number in many cases. And we love numbers in the United States. I mean, you don't like something that's happening in government? Call your congressman. Oh, you're having trouble with something? Call this person and get get a free consultation. But in Finland, no, they actually get help with their material needs when it comes to parenthood. And that's that's an important takeaway that I think many people would be unaware of if we didn't have this opportunity to do a comparative analysis, which was sparked by Elizabeth Brunig's thoughtful piece. Now, in um, another way where families get no support is obviously with mandatory paid family leave. Currently in the United States, it's up to private companies to decide what their family leave policy is. If stagnant wages, by the way, are any indication of where uh, executives' heads are at, you can get a sense of just how generous uh, these leave policies tend to be. Now, federal regulations protect new mothers who might want to take up to three weeks of unpaid leave. As for Finland, I'm sure you're starting to notice a theme here. In Finland, you get 10 months of paid parental leave, out of which about four months is set aside for the mother and, and you start it before the baby is born. And then father can keep nine weeks. Typically, parents stay home for the first three weeks. They share the rest of the time until the baby is nine months old. A parent can even stay home until the child is three years old and keep his or her job. However, the stipend is much smaller. In February 2020, Finland proposed increasing parental leave so the father's time off matches the mother's. Can you imagine taking almost like a year of paid leave off to raise your family? I mean, it's unheard of. We're having ridiculous debates here in the United States about whether or not the Biden administration should expand childcare by a measly $225 billion. In Finland, they have this social safety net that allows people to have a family if they choose to have a family. In the United States, you have to factor in all of these issues, right? The cost of childbirth, uh, the postpartum chaos that comes along with it, and the lack of support we get from the government. And of course, then there's the issue of childcare, because we live in a country where single-income households are really a thing of the past. It's incredibly difficult to be a stay-at-home mom. Many mothers want to get back to work. And so in order to do that, they need childcare for their children. But childcare costs are crushing American families across the country. Overall, the cost of childcare has roughly tripled since 1990, which is more than the overall rate of inflation. Today, it's a multi-billion dollar business. And it feels like almost everyone is struggling to keep up. A lot of other countries have different rationales for why they have childcare, gender equity, preparing children for school, boosting the economy, whatever. The U.S., to a great extent, does not subscribe to those kinds of rationales. In 1971, President Nixon vetoed a childcare plan saying it would weaken the role of family. 
Both of these women in Los Angeles are on welfare, aid to families with dependent children. In the 80s, government funding fell again, with a public backlash against the idea of welfare for low-income women. These are all programs President Reagan says he wants to cut or tighten. We will tighten welfare. I thought welfare was already tight. Today, the government covers less of the child care burden than it did in the 40s. So as you can see, there are countless disincentives to having children. But the whole point of Elizabeth Brunig's piece was that she has gotten a lot of fulfillment out of being a mother. And I would suspect that there are many other women out there who would love to experience that, but are incredibly terrified by the fact that having a child could put them in bankruptcy. Having a child could mean not having the means necessary to ensure that that child has a healthy and prosperous life. And so, again, it was a thoughtful piece, to say the least. And the fact that people are coming after her because they didn't like the headline shows you the kind of ridiculous knee-jerk reaction that this anti-Brunic cottage industry is fully invested in. Now, the disincentives to having children partly explains the population and birth rate decline in the United States. In fact, the Associated Press reports that the U.S. population grew by the smallest rate in at least 120 years from uh, from 2019 to 2020, according to figures released Tuesday by the U.S. Census Bureau, a trend that demographers say provides a glimpse of the coronavirus pandemic's toll. So, We had hundreds of thousands of of Americans die from the pandemic. So clearly that's a giant factor in the decline of the U.S. population. But it doesn't explain all of it. In fact, uh, population growth in the United States already was stagnant over the past several years due to immigration restrictions and a dip in fertility. And the dip in fertility is significant. In fact, the birth rate measured as the uh, number of babies per thousand women ages 15 to 44 has fallen about 19% since its peak in 2007. Just let that sink in. 2007 wasn't that long ago. But the material conditions of Americans has declined along with the birth rate. The birth rate was down 8% among teenagers compared with 2019 and by 6% among women ages 20 to 24. The rate among women in their early 20s is down by 40% since 2007. And the only group that did not see a decline in the birth rate were women in their 40s. And when you really think about it, it's because women in their 40s are more likely to experience some financial stability and have some means necessary to give birth to and raise a child in the United States. One small area of optimism does have to do with uh, the Biden administration and his willingness to at least acknowledge the unaffordable nature of having kids. He implemented a generous one-year, it's important to keep that in mind, one-year tax credit as part of the coronavirus relief package and claims to want to make that tax credit permanent. But Biden is also proposing government um, spending uh, to the tune of $225 billion for affordable child care. And that's all part of his American Families Plan. President Biden's American Families Plan will ensure low- and middle-income families pay no more than 7% of their income on high-quality child care for children under 5 years old, saving the average family $14,800 per year on child care expenses. 
The possibility of these proposals even passing is really a long shot. But even if they did pass, they come nowhere close, nowhere near the incredible social safety net provided by Nordic countries like Finland. But some wouldn't even be aware of that. We wouldn't even be having this conversation. We wouldn't be able to learn from countries that are doing things right if it weren't for people like Liz Brunig sharing her perspective on the pages of the New York Times. Now, she's leaving the New York Times to go work over at The Atlantic, but she does fantastic work, and I feel privileged and happy that someone like her was able to share her perspective so we can have this conversation on this show. Don't let the blue checkmark liberals uh, lead you astray. They have one goal and one goal only, and that's supporting and protecting corporate Democrats. And honestly, their role in diminishing the social safety net in this country. Nando. Yeah, I mean, I found I I watched that sort of mini controversy unfold on Twitter, just in utter bafflement, uh, the vitriol spewed at what was a perfectly, first of all, beautifully written, but also um, it it wasn't dogmatic in any way. It wasn't like, this is what you need to do. It was just, anyway, it was just very, very, very strange. Um, And you know, I, I, I often think about the tragedy in this country of raising children because the people that I talk to who do have children, for the most part, everyone says like it's it's, you know, it's given their life new meaning. It's just like the like the miracle of life. It's this kind of, you know, incredible thing that, you know, seeing yourself reflected back to you in, in a human being that you helped create Um that contrasted with just the utter difficulty of raising children in this country, the lack of help that anyone has, the obviously the costs, but not just the costs. Like you mentioned, it used to be where one one member of the family could earn an income to support an entire family. That's impossible now. I mean, you know, women mm-hmm. entering the workforce is obviously a good thing, but the but the the fact that you need two people in the household to be earning income just to scrape by means that who's going to take care of the kids? Like it, you know, it doesn't. It right. shouldn't be that it, it, sh- it shouldn't be gendered. It shouldn't be like that. Women have to stay at home and 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 raise the kids. But it, there should be the option of one of the two parents, be it the father or the mother, um, to stay home and watch the kids. Like that should be an option available to people. But it's but it's just not. It's it, it's not for the vast majority of people, um, and that just makes things incredibly yep. difficult. And it's funny because like. My decode this 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 week also meant, talks draws heavily upon a Brunig family member. This one, uh, Matt, but it 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 does talk about a similar aspect in terms of the the labor shortage. What he points out is that um, the sort of the disappointing jobs number was driven mostly by women dropping out of the workforce in order to yep. go back and raise kids. It's be, it's not the generous unemployment benefits; it's the lack of childcare assistance. In the pandemic, you know, obviously there's, you know, a lot of schools aren't open and, you know, things are, it's just hard, you know, what do you do with the kids all day? (laughs) So it's, it's a lot of women kind of dropping out of the workforce um, to, to take care of the kids. And it's, it's because the United States just leaves parents out to dry, just leave them out to dry. And it's, I, I frankly don't know how anyone can do it. Certainly anyone like any working class person, just how, how working class people raise kids. I just find, I don't have any kids. So um, I just don't understand how I would do it. And I don't understand how anyone else does it, frankly. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, like, you know, 
me and my husband have had conversations about it. And there was like a huge part of us that wants to do it. Like we want to have a child of our own, but I, I hate the idea of waking up in the morning, dropping off my child in some form of childcare, if I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford it, and then not being able to spend any time with my child until I'm off work at six o'clock. Like yeah. having children that are that have to be raised by other people because of how this economy is set up. It's just, it's really difficult. But I'm I'm really excited to hear uh, your analysis um, and you know Brunick's thoughts on the economy and why you know these companies are having so much difficulty getting workers to go back to work. Um, so take it away, Nando. All right. Well. You know, there with the vaccine rolling out in the United States, businesses are slowly reopening and expanding capacity and consumption as a result is booming as everything slowly gets back to normal. But there was a jobs report this month and the top line numbers were a little disappointing to most analysts. And this has led to a flurry of media discussing the so-called labor shortage. All right, we're back now with another blow to businesses due to the pandemic. Restaurants are now dealing with staffing shortages right as they were hoping to start recovering some of their big losses. ABC's Deirdre Bolton has been looking into it. This morning, some restaurant owners say their customers are back and it's like turning on a light switch. We have more business than we can handle. It sounds like a humble brag, but it's a business problem. As life returns to normal, not all workers are returning to their old jobs. My entire career, I've never seen it this difficult to find people to work in the restaurants. Oh, no. Well, what is causing this? Well, we can turn to an incredible YouTube channel that I found, which is basically just a guy who runs a landscaping business talking about all things related to the landscaping business. He interviewed a fellow landscaping business owner about the crisis. What's up, dog? We got the young hustler. He's back. He's not 15 anymore. Now he's 36. How old are you? <laughs> 19. He's 19 now. He's crushing it. Look at his nice truck. He called me out. You got a lawn care landscape business, but those trees behind us, you need a quote for those. So anyways, I was just talking to him about the employee issue. And what were you sure. saying, bro, this year, 2021? So our lowest paid guy right now is mid-16s making per hour. Um, and there's just no one that wants to work anymore, I guess, right? I mean, we're, we're staying optimistic on the whole situation. Um, but this whole unemployment thing right now, it's really, it's really not helping us at all. Because I have guys that bust their ass and work 50 hours a week that are still making less than someone sitting at home that are capable to work. Uh, and a big thing with it is, you know, we have some really good guys and we try to come to them. And go, hey, we'll give, you a, we'll give you an incentive to get some more employees over here. And what they say is they, they say, you know, yeah, they can come back when these when these benefits end, which is kind of ridiculous in my opinion. I mean, mm -hmm. have some pride, get back to work, right? Mm -hmm. You know? That kid, by the way, is 19 and has been an owner of a landscaping business since he was 12. But, you know, that, that YouTube channel, by the way, gets way more views than you would think. It's like a lot of views. So anyway, uh, there you have it. It's too generous unemployment uh, benefits are to blame. The government is giving people money so they don't want to go back to work. Anyway, it's not just guys on the street who are saying it. Republicans like Marco Rubio are also worried about the specter that is haunting the United States. The specter of generous unemployment benefits. Everywhere I went, everywhere I went, as I interacted with small businesses, we did a lot of focus on recipients of PPP and how the program had helped them. Everywhere I went, I heard the same thing from people that didn't know each other. There's no way that they... Uh, coordinated on this message. And it's went something like this. 
We have 50 job openings. We can only get five people to even respond. Only one will come in for an interview, and then they didn't take the job when I offered it. Over and over and over again, hearing that from small businesses in various sectors, so not just restaurants and hotels and hospitality, but various other sectors as well, including one manufacturer. And when I asked, well, why is it? Why are people telling you that they're not going to do it? And the answer that people gave them was, look, I'm receiving unemployment benefits. It pays maybe not as much as I was making working, but pretty close. When those run out, I'm going to go back to work. That's what we're being told by small businesses. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not having a press conference here with you today to tell you that's what I believe. It's what I'm being told. So I'm here to tell you what small businesses are telling me and I believe are telling everyone that's here. And that is that enhanced unemployment benefits are creating an incentive for people not to return to work until they expire. It's not because people are lazy. I'm not accusing anyone of being lazy. It's because people are logical. Because it's logic that if you're going to make close to what or as much, or in some cases more than what you do when you're at work, you'll go back to work when that expires. We have a labor crisis in this country. Oh, dear God, Marco Rubio. We have a labor crisis in this country. People just don't want to work for the meager wages that these business owners want to pay them. No one asked Marco Rubio about the money earned by the CEOs during the pandemic, which somehow went up. So you have some reporting specifically on how CEOs fared financially during the pandemic, as so many Americans faced financial fallout. Talk to us about the CEO paychecks and why they often personally did not take a hit like many of their profit margins did. Yes, CEO paychecks generally went up last year, even in industries like cruise lines and hotels and restaurants that were hurt the worst by the, the coronavirus pandemic. And the reason is, is that the, the, what, we've, what I found in my reporting was that the, the watchdogs, the corporate boards that are supposed to decide what these CEOs get paid and what's get paid and what's fair, they didn't really do their job last year. They made excuses. We had found the instance of Yum Brands saying that, well, it was unfair for their CEO's paycheck to go down just because of the pandemic. Well, there was a lot that was unfair about the <laughs> pandemic. That's what critics told us. And the, and the workers didn't cause the pandemic either. And yet many of them lost their jobs. Yeah. In fact, a report put out by the Institute for Policy Studies this week showed that not only did CEO pays rise dramatically during the pandemic, often companies rigged their own rules in order to pay their CEOs more while at the same time paying their employees less. And this wasn't just companies that employ high earners like, say, hedge funds. It was the CEOs of companies that employ low wage earners. Here's the report. The top line findings are that during the pandemic, more than half of the country's 100 largest low-wage employers rigged pay rules to give CEOs 29% average raises, while their frontline employees made 2% less. Of the 100 S&P 500 firms with the lowest median worker wages, 51 bent their own rules in 2020 to pump up executive paychecks. Common manipulations including low, included lowering performance bars to help executives meet bonus targets, awarding special retention bonuses, excluding poor second quarter results from evaluations, and replacing performance-based pay with time-based awards. CEO compensation averaged $15.3 million, up 29% from 2019. Hilton CEO Christopher Nassetta pocketed the largest rigged pay package, Adjustments to his stock awards inflated the hotelier's total compensation to $55.9 million, 
1,953 times as much as the company's median worker pay of 28608 And after a year of inactivity, and with demand skyrocketing as vaccines roll out and people go out and consume, companies are sitting on a ton of cash. If they're so worried about a labor shortage, they could offer people more money to work for them. Are they doing that? No. They're using that cash to do stock buybacks at record levels. Some U.S. stocks could get a boost from a wave of share buybacks. From January through to the end of April this year, U.S. companies have announced a record $484 billion in buybacks. The FT's U.S. equities correspondent, Aziza Kazumov, is covering this. Yeah, so if you think about it, share buybacks cost companies a lot of money since, you know, they have to go and buy back the shares at the market price with cash. And a year ago or so, companies really didn't know how bad and how long this crisis was going to be. Um, so, you know, under those circumstances, you really didn't want to be spending excess cash on something like your own shares. But in the last couple of months, those dynamics have changed with the vaccine rollout and cases trending down and this sort of reopening kicking into gear. So companies now have are a lot more secure about their futures. They sort of know better what's coming down the pipeline. They have found themselves with a lot of cash on hand because, you know, there's been all this pent up demand and people have started spending a lot more in the first quarter. So companies are just in a lot better place, um, which is why a lot of them have started doing buybacks again. Now, we don't have time to get into the ins and outs of stock buybacks, but the premise is pretty simple. The managers of a company decide to use cash to buy their own stock, which increases its price. And since the managers and the investors who oversee them own that stock, it boosts their own net worth. It's essentially managers sticking their hand in the cookie jar and taking some cookies for themselves. But back to the jobs report. Left policy wonk Matt Brunig crunched the numbers, and unsurprisingly, he found that the narrative was somewhat misleading. In a post over at the People's Policy Project, which he runs, he wrote, On the employment side, we see that just under 6.5 million people newly found employment in March. In April, that number shot up to 6.9 million people who who newly found employment. More job seekers are finding jobs than before, which is at odds with the idea that people who are out of work have become especially reluctant to come into work due to unemployment benefits or similar. This increase in new employment was, however, completely overwhelmed by the number of people who went from employed to unemployed and people who went from employed to not in the labor force or NILF. The number of people moving into NILF status grew by an especially large amount. Importantly, NILFs are ineligible for unemployment benefits. And so this figure is also at odds with the idea that unemployment benefits are a major driver of recent labor market dynamics. Without access to CPS microdata, it's hard to say what is going on with the NILFs with much certainty. So generally, NILFs are people who are disabled, retired, in school, or taking care of children. It is hard to see how disability and school would have ticked up, which leaves taking care of children and retirement as the likely culprits for these labor market exits. And when he broke down the data, he found that the huge increase in NILFs, or people who dropped out of the labor force entirely, meaning they weren't seeking jobs, was almost entirely driven by women. The number of people moving from employment to unemployment was pretty much the same for both months for both genders. The main thing that stands out is the number of women moving out of employment and into NILF status increased by a large amount from 1.8 million to over 2.5 million, while that same number actually decreased for men from 2 million to 1.8 million. Insofar as dropping out of work to take care of kids is more typical of women than men, these figures suggest that taking care of kids is the primary reason why NILF status increased last month and the primary reason why net employment growth declined 
last month. So maybe we don't need to cut unemployment insurance. If we want workers to get back to work, we need to expand childcare assistance. But still, the media narrative has focused on unemployment as the culprit. Talk to anyone who's in the South Florida restaurant business and the conversation goes right to the issue of the difficulty hiring workers, cooks, waiters, you name it. It's bad enough that businesses are limiting their capacity, reducing their operating hours, closing on days they're usually open because there's not enough staff to meet the needs of our guests. Bottom line, many of the longtime restaurant workers can, in the short term, make more money living off unemployment and other state and federal subsidies during the pandemic. It's desperate, Hank. We are um, competing with uh, the federal unemployment. Um, some of our workers are tell us they're making more money staying at home than returning to work. The issue is not confined to South Florida. It is a nationwide dilemma for restaurant owners. In wide open Texas... They went to construction site or some other jobs uh, which pay more. Same story in the Midwest. Indiana, for example, they can't find restaurant workers. Hiring uh, to secure new, new employees has been atrocious. There is a lot of individuals that are seeing some great benefits from unemployment both state and then also for the first time ever, which we've seen in the last year, federal unemployment. So what to do here in Florida? What's the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association advocating? We asked Senator Scott and Senator Rosen um, to please, please note that the unemployment benefits need to be monitored. We need folks to come back to work. Yeah. Now, again, Matt Brunig crunched the numbers. He writes, Quote, it is worth remembering that not all people who are out of work are even on unemployment benefits. As indicated in the graph above, in late April, there were 3.8 million people on unemployment benefits. In that same month, there were 151.1 million people employed, which was equal to an employment uh, rate of 57.9%. Prior to the recession, the employment rate peaked at 61.1%. If that rate was obtained last month, the total number of employed people would have been 8.4 million people higher at 159.5 million people. If we take this 8.4 million figure as the number of missing workers, we see that less than half of the missing workers are even on unemployment. But let's just say that it is true, that there may be some truth to the claim that the generous unemployment benefits doled out by both presidents, Trump and Biden, coupled with with the one-time stimulus checks, have caused some people to reconsider whether they want to go back to a shitty restaurant job that pays below minimum wage because of tips, only to get abused by the twin tyrannies of spoiled customers and awful bosses. Now, would that be so bad? You see, the idea of a labor shortage is, on the whole, a good thing. It is very bad for business owners, but it is very good for workers. A labor shortage is what happens when you have something called full employment. In short, full employment is when the demand for labor is equal to the supply of labor. At that point, employers are forced to fight with each other to compete with workers because there is no pool of unemployed workers to pull from. So when employers compete, wages and benefits and all kinds of worker goodies rise. Full employment used to be a political rallying cry that was quite common, not so much these days, but it was in the Democratic Party platform in every election from 1944 to 1988. Here's the Democratic Party platform of 1948, for example. 
It writes, quote, we reject the principle which we have always rejected, but which the Republicans, uh, Republican 80th Congress enthusiastically accepted, that government exists for the benefit of the privileged few, to serve the interests of all and not the few, to assure a world in which peace and justice can prevail, to achieve security, full production, and full employment. This is our platform. Now, in 1992, under the leadership of one Bill Clinton, full employment vanished from the platform. But real full employment is a worthy goal for the left. In 1943, the Polish economist Michael Kaleski wrote a famous essay on full employment in which he outlined how it can be achieved through government policy, but also its political effects. He wrote, quote, The maintenance of full employment would cause social and political changes which would give a new impetus to the opposition of the business leaders. Indeed, under a regime of permanent full employment, the SAC, or firing employees, would cease to play its role as a disciplinary measure. The social position of the boss would be undermined, and the self-assurance and class consciousness of the working class would grow. Strikes for wage increases and improvements in conditions of work would create political tension. It is true that profits would be higher under a regime of full employment than they are under average, uh, on average under laissez-faire, and even the rise in wage rates resulting from the stronger bargaining power of the workers is less likely to reduce profits than to increase prices and thus adversely affects only the rentier interests. But discipline in the factories and political stability are more appreciated than profits by business leaders. Their class interest tells them that lasting full employment is unsound from their point of view, and that unemployment is an integral part of the normal capitalist system. Unemployment is an integral part of the normal capitalist system. So we're seeing all that play out. The fact that people don't want to work for the starvation, wage, for the starvation wages that businesses are offering is forcing business to offer better wages and benefits. For other owners, the lack of staff puts them personally in an unsustainable position. Erica Simino manages Columbo's, a popular restaurant on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. She says some of her competitors are trying to attract workers with extra money. They are offering $17 an hour for dishwashers to start. Plus, after if they retain them for 90 days, they get $1,000. These are um, incentives that this business has never seen before. She says Colombo's owners are now adding a 401k program, which she describes as unheard of in the business. A 401k program for dishwashers? Heavens, no. But if you're a small business owner watching this, don't worry. Joe Biden ain't going to let this go on for much longer. We're going to make it clear that anyone collecting unemployment who is offered a suitable job must take the job or lose their unemployment benefits. There are a few COVID-19 related exceptions so that people aren't forced to choose between their basic safety and a paycheck. But otherwise, that's the law. Now, that is just pure 1990s style anti-welfare talk right there. Now, a worker who is unemployed and chooses uh, is on a worker who is on an unemployment and chooses not to go back to a shitty job is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. But our system is wired in such a way that it needs to impoverish people in order to compel them to work in terrible jobs. We need to reject this framing altogether. Now, they're going to scare you by saying that the price of a Big Mac is going to go from three ninety nine to four ninety nine if businesses need to pay their workers more. They're also going to say that you may have to wait a little bit longer for your chocolate frosty at Wendy's if businesses can't find workers to work for starvation wages. Don't listen to them. The pandemic has caused dramatic changes in our lives. It's been really hard for the vast majority of people, 
but it also has opened up new political opportunities for a lot, as a lot of the old conventional wisdom has been proven to be bullshit. Employers sweating to fill their job postings is framed as a bad thing by the media, but it is in fact very, very good. As Michael Kolesky wrote back in 1943, full employment capitalism will of course have to develop new social and political institutions which will reflect the increased power of the working class. If capitalism can adjust itself to full employment, a fundamental reform will have been incorporated in it. If not, it will show itself an outmoded system which must be scrapped. Nando, what a great segment. And um, I do want to talk about it with you um, in a little bit, but uh, we need to get our interview started because of the situation on the ground in Israel. So uh, joining us now is Amira Haas. Amira is a journalist who has previously lived in Gaza and since 1997 in Ramallah in the West Bank. She covers the Israeli occupation for the daily um, Haaretz. Thank you so much for joining us, Amira. Hi. Do you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Um, and, you know, I know that it's it's chaotic where you're at. So uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're able to join us and, and you know, share um, your perspective from someone who's actually on the ground. You know, you shared with us that you used to stay in your friend's apartment in the building that was uh, just taken down by the Israeli military today. Uh, that was the building that had uh, n- several international media outlets operating from. And so uh, before we get to some more contextual information for the audience about what's happening right now, can you just comment on that? I'm sorry, I'm I'm just in the middle of, you know, communicating with my paper, so I was a bit confused now. Um, the, The building was, the Israeli military claims that they are hitting the, Hamas targets and that Hamas targets are inside uh, among Palestinian population, civilian population, and that's why <clears throat> that's why the the fault is with Hamas. Uh, but you know this so about this building, which hosts many many uh, offices of lawyers and uh, clinics, uh, phys- of doctors, and uh, some apartments. Um, I don't know which, if it's true or not true, uh, but the claim that Hamas are among civilian population ignores totally the fact that all Israeli military establishments are within Israeli or Palestinian civilian population. Uh, what the, the largest military basis here in the West Bank is just is one kilometer away from my house here in uh, in Ramallah, uh, you have uh, secret uh, apartments of uh, the Israeli Israeli uh, Shabak, Israeli civil uh, uh, secret services, which are placed in uh, normal Israeli uh, residential uh, buildings. So, when Israel bombs all these areas in the, in 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 all these buildings, all these uh, apartments uh, in the Gaza Strip claiming that Hamas are uh, situate, uh, Hamas facilities are among Palestinian population, uh, civilian population, Israel opens the, the door to anybody else coming in the future and hitting almost any neighborhood in Israel. 
because in any neighborhood you will find military people in any neighborhood you will find uh, soldiers who came back from home, from the military uh, uh, from their unit <clears throat> and have their weapons so um, this insecurity that Israel is treating is is inflicting now on every person in among two million people in Gaza uh, could could fire back in the future because there is no inch in Israel without a military presence among Israeli civilian population. Many of the people here in the United States have been obviously horrified by the images that they've that they've been witnessing uh, on the news, the you know the buildings being bombed, uh, the, the little girl today saying, you know, I'm only 10, I'm only 10, like this isn't fair. Um, what needs to happen for this kind of aggression and violence to end? <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's um, what has to happen is international pressure and, 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 and from yesterday and the day before yesterday and from 10 years ago and from 20 years ago, this, this is what has to happen. Yeah. You know, just to give the audience um, some updates on, on how the, you know, how the conflict has unfortunately gotten even more brutal. Um, You know, oftentimes the way that it's presented to a U.S. audience is as if both sides are on equal footing. You know, you hear a lot about how Israel has the right to defend itself, as if, you know, the the rockets uh, and the, the more recent conflict was started by the Palestinians or started by Hamas, when um, the, the fact of the matter is actually very much the opposite, right? So the current conflict that's taking place today, can you give the audience some contextual information about how we got here? Because simply saying Israel has the right to defend itself makes it appear as though Hamas was the um, the agitator here, the aggressor here, uh, but the facts on the ground are very different from, from that narrative. Yeah, that's true. Uh, indeed, if we start to roll back, we, never, we would never know how, where to stop unless we reach uh, 1948 or, uh, or the beginning of the uh, 20th century. Uh, but of course, we don't want to go that far. But let's start with the with the month of Ramadan, the the, the, the Muslim fast uh, uh, month of fasting that uh, started the, uh, a month ago, uh, more than four weeks ago, and almost since the beginning. And this is a month where um, um, it's a strange month that combines combines. Uh, a, 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 Piety and and introspection with uh, with fasting, and then with the breaking of the fast, some 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 family gatherings and uh, uh, even festivities and uh, sense of, a feeling of of togetherness and uh, some relaxation from the woes of this world. So from the start of this month, uh, the Israeli police decided to. Uh, close uh, the the um, uh, the main entrance to one of the old city old city's uh, entrances in Jerusalem uh, to block it not to enter not not the entry itself but to not to allow the young people who used to sit on the uh, stairs of this uh, entrance of this uh, 
a kind of a, a um, esplanade to, of this entrance. A, a very petty thing, you would say. But this really annoyed the, the, the youngsters, this youth, which started to, to protest. And then clashes involved, uh, evolved with the Israeli police. A lot of brutality. A lot of brutality that that completely shut down the 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 life in the middle of of, of uh, the Palestinian city of Jerusalem, um, and at the same time, uh, the, the 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 fate of a nearby Palestinian neighborhood was nearing um, some kind of of a decisive moment. This is the uh, 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 neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah where Israel is uh, trying to evict or has already evicted several families from there, uh, claiming that the land is Jewish land from the 19th century. And that's why the Palestinian tenants of this neighborhood who own houses that were built for them in uh, 1956, they have to leave their houses. And uh, Israeli judges ruled in favor of the Jewish uh, companies that claim that they own the land. Uh, now, even if they claim, even if they do, the land, uh, if they, even if they do own the land, the people have been living there for 65 years, and the people are refugees of, from 1948. They own land and houses inside Israel, but they are not allowed to go back to their own houses and land. So somehow the combination of these two issues um, attracted attention more than before, both of Jerusalemites and of other Palestinians. And on top of all of, of this all, uh, at the, in the, during the last 10 days of the Ramadan, the Israeli police uh, broke in brutally into the um, esplanade of, of Al-Aqsa Mosque the third important and sacred uh, uh, site of, for Muslims all over the world. Uh, and the brutal scenes, the scenes of this brutality of Israeli uh, police invading and, 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 and um, um, desecrating the holy place uh, also invoked the anger of so many people. And then you, you could feel the uh, solidarity among Palestinians that it's not always easy to, to, uh, to achieve. You know, Palestinians have so many reasons to start uprisings, uh, to start an uprising, to start a popular uprising. And we never know why, why it is being delayed. But then, then there is a moment when you have a straw which breaks the camel's back. Or then you have another straw, and which is even a bit more, a bit heavier than the former straw. And this is what happened at the beginning of this week. Uh, at the same time, there was the Israeli, the what Israel celebrates as Jerusalem Day, the day when East Jerusalem was occupied by Israeli military in 1967. So Israel and right-wing, religious, messianic Israelis celebrate this day by going, by marching into the, into the streets of the old city, Jerusalem's old city, which is an utter pr provocation 
uh, Israeli, it seems that Israeli um, intelligence recommended that the day of Jerusalem, of the occupation of Jerusalem, would not be celebrated, but the political echelons didn't, li- didn't listen to the Israeli um, uh, intelligence. So on that day, of uh, that day on Monday, um, the, the three straws, you would say, or four straws, really broke the camel's back. The Sheikh Jarrah, Jerusalem, Al-Aqsa, and, uh, and, uh, and actually three straws. So all these three straws broke the camel's back. And Hamas, Hamas indeed wanted to say, we are here, we care for Jerusalem. And they launched uh, an attack, the first attack, towards Jerusalem, uh, an attack of missiles. So you could, you know, we could say all kinds of things about military attacks, and I'm not a fan of them. But it was a way of Hamas to say, uh, hey, hey, we are not, don't disconnect us. We are not disconnected from what happens in Jerusalem, both to its city, its residents and to the holy place for Islam, Al-Aqsa. And that's how this round of a conflict started. I want to ask about the reaction um, to the latest round of violence in Israel itself, among Israeli Jews. I mean, I know that there's been um, a lot of political instability uh, in in Israel as of late. Like, I think there's been four parliamentary elections uh, in the last year. But at the same time, so Netanyahu is kind of like struggling to 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 maintain power. But at the same time, his main political rival, Benny Gantz, seems seems to be fully supportive of all this as well. Uh, what what is what is the reaction like inside uh, of Israel? As I read and listen to to Israeli commentators, uh, they quite a few analyze the the present escalation as a way for Netanyahu and uh, his associates to maintain their rule. Imagine, so it means that they could have been they could have taken steps early enough in order to prevent this bloody escalation from happening. We are talking about, uh, I think, about 139 Palestinians who have been killed in less than a week, uh, uh, 39 of whom are children, and uh, around 20, 22 women. So, uh, And I'm not talking about older people and, and young people who I'm sure have nothing to do with, uh, with the Hamas uh, uh, with Hamas uh, military wing. Uh, so even Israeli mainstream commentators cl- uh, analyze it as uh, the, analyze this escalation as a way for Netanyahu to hold to his rule he, because he was about, he lost his mandate. He, the mandate to to create a government was given last two weeks ago I, I stopped uh, to to his rival Yair Lapid so this is a way for him to maintain his uh, control over the Israeli government um, this is what what is said in the Israeli mainstream media at the same time of course um, the Palestinian the Hamas and then Islamic jihad missiles have or rockets 
have killed 10, 10 Israelis so far in the last uh, week and have caused some, some, uh, some damage to infrastructure and mostly instilled so much fear among Israelis because the alarm sirens are really frightening. I mean, I think sometimes it's more frightening than the, than the, the, the fall itself of a, of a missile or of a, of a rocket. Um, so Hamas have managed to, um, to create such a, 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 a balance of fear, not a balance in, 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 uh, in the damage and in, 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 human, in human casualties, but in fear. So parallel to all these uh, clashes between Palestinians or Israeli citizens and uh, Jews in Israel, uh, Jewish Israelis have started all over the, the all over Israel, and you see here pa- demonstrations of Israeli of Palestinians who are Israeli citizens, where the anger about their about seventy three years of 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 uh, discrimination and violence, bureaucratic violence, uh, deprivation them of their land. Uh, uh, um, not to mention the history of the of the of the I mean the the the, the their history of being a, a people people driven out of this land. Uh, so all this culminated in a series of demonstrations and clashes all over Israel in Israeli in Palestinian cities and villages and neighborhoods in Israel. Uh, this is quite impressive. I mean, some of the sites, you know, sites of vandalism and some lynches uh, that, by the way, were on both sides, um, are not. It's not a pleasant sight, but at the same time, it is. Uh, a, it is a people in all in all of uh, historical Palestine between the river to the sea. It's a people which uh, stands up against. Uh, 70 years of of uh, of deprivation of oppression of of uh, uh, unex- of uh, uh, of settler colonialism and this is very impressive you know you mention the sirens and how uh israeli citizens uh legitimately feel fear and I'm curious if the Israeli people are aware of the multiple attempts to engage in a ceasefire. So uh, the Associated Press reports that Israel turned down an Egyptian proposal for a one-year truce that Hamas rulers had accepted. An Egyptian official said Friday on condition of anonymity to discuss the negotiation. So Benjamin Netanyahu has turned down uh, calls for a ceasefire and I'm curious if that information actually gets to the Israeli people who seem to be terrified about, you know, what's does, happening right now. It does get to them. It does, it does reach the Israeli. I mean, I've seen several, several such reports in Hebrew. I don't know how much people consume this information and uh, how much they let it seep in. But, uh, but yes, it is available. This information is available. And are they are they okay with the fact that Netanyahu has rejected a ceasefire? It seems yes. You know, like uh, uh, <laughs> military attacks have the tendency to um, 
to evoke more uh, more nationalistic uh, 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 internal solidarity and standing behind the your government uh, it's true not only about israelis i think it's true about other places as well and especially because uh, they feel that they still can inflict much much more harm and damage and casualties to the palestinian side and the atmosphere of revenge uh, among israelis and many israelis i think is is uh, uh, is very strong i mean people the to talk now about uh, that the solution can only be political and we have to address to address the the the, the history in its entirety and not not entirety and not just uh, the last 10 days or last one month uh, is a very difficult uh, request to to uh, propose to the israeli to the average israeli today and, and what are some of those politic potential political solutions i mean with the with the with the increased settlements in the last several years a two state solution seems you know impossible um a one state solution seems intolerable for for israelis uh what are, what are some of the political potential political solutions i i didn't go as far as talking about this kind of solution but any solution is a <laughs> is a phase in life you know and no solution is final excuse me for the this uh uh, uh combination of two words so uh no i didn't think about that going that far um but the israeli the israeli uh, you know i i saw that you 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 wrote as the headline for this interview uh, that we are going to talk about israeli apartheid and i thought that the right a more accurate uh, description would be talking about israeli settler colonialism because uh, apartheid is actually the kind of a of a of a phase within or a kind of a of a final or almost final phase of settler colonialism uh both here and in other places of course and settler colonialism has uh, uh is an ongoing uh, now right now it's still an ongoing process uh where, and it is done most uh, uh, radically and 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 with a lot of 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 um enthusiasm on the part of certain israelis and israeli authorities now in the west bank so when i talk about political i mean that right now what has to be stopped is this uh, 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 process of settler colonialism and again this is where international political intervention intervention is so important and so needed i'm not talking about this uh, you know distant solutions i'm talking about political interventions now to make israelis understand that the settler colonialism pro, settler colonial process going on pre, in present everywhere in the west bank is is really is has has uh, completely usurped and occupied and conquered the mentality of all israelis in israel itself of course israel is a product of uh, uh, a settler colonial movement but it came to some kind of a relative halt Uh, uh, uh which has to which has to be of course addressed but right now there is a danger of those groups in the west bank that are promoting the the uh, promoting the uh, uh, uh takeover of 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 most of the palestinian land in in the west bank um 
they don't only want this. They want to complete, to repeat uh, the Nakba. They want to repeat the 19, the expulsion of 1948. And they are able, they are advocating for the expulsion of Palestinians from this country. Uh, so a political solution now would be indeed to discuss, to see this issue uh, and to understand the danger that they pose and that in a way Hamas, with its militarization, uh, tells us that there are uh, 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 are forces here in, in both in this country and in the region who will not allow Israel to continue the settler colonial uh, process the way uh, so many, too many Israelis, Israeli Jews are uh, uh, engaged in. One final question for you. You know, you mentioned the importance of political pressure as a sh- at least a short-term solution. And so, you know, my mind started racing with the possibilities, and really there are few. Uh, in the United States, we have the Biden administration, which didn't even acknowledge uh, what was done uh, to the Palestinian, um, you know, citizens in, in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, but he did mention repeatedly that Israel has the right to defend itself. I think about the International Criminal Court, which is, of course, considering, uh, you know, prosecuting the government of Israel for war crimes. Israel doesn't even recognize um, the legitimacy of the ICC. So, um I know it's difficult because I can't really think of any possible political solutions in the short term. Is there anything that comes to mind for you? Look, I was watching this afternoon the Al Jazeera uh, channel, the the uh, live live streaming, and they brought photo, they brought foot, uh, footage and and and, and uh, films from different capitals in the world where thousands of people were demonstrating against Israeli aggression. Um, I hope that this, I mean, you know, it it always happens when when Gaza is being attacked. And it's not enough because after this uh, military uh, violence, uh, when it ends the military violence, which is so so clear, remains the what I call the institutionalized and bureaucratic violence uh, that characterizes Israel rule over the Palestinians. So one would hope that those thousands of demonstrators understand the connection between the military violence and the bureaucratic and institutionalized violence. Um, in each such demonstration, there are more people who are, there are more uh, there is more pressure ex- uh, exerted on those capitals. Um, right now, look, I don't like to prophesize or to give advice. I think it's 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 for activists to to work out together. Uh, but I think from what I read also about about the reactions in the United States, I think that more people are. Um, Understand the danger that Israel poses in its current uh, policy. Danger not only to Palestinians, but to some, some, to the security and the safety of this region and even uh, beyond this region. Uh, and all we have to do is to continue the, 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 the political messages and political recruitment and political uh, um, uh, consciousness raising. Uh, it's not up to me to say how, but uh, I can give the information.
and the analysis of what is happening. But it's up for you, I think, and for activists to listen to it, to think of more ways to reach out and to um, um, and to show that the danger is is to an entire. I mean, the danger is of making this this place into a site of religious war, uh, not a political war, not a political conflict, not a, a, a conflict that you know was in New Zealand between. Uh, 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 and and in Australia and others uh, between the conquerors, white conquerors, and uh, and indigenous people, but a religious war. And this is we all know that this can be much more. This can be really fatal to the safety of the world. Amira Haas, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We truly appreciate it, and please stay safe. Thank you. I'm safe. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. Yeah, I mean, it was it was. I I was just reminded of something when she mentioned a free Palestine from the river to the sea. That Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN in 2018 for saying that um, exact phrase. Um, it was, yeah. you know, he was accused of using an anti-Semitic trope or whatever. And it's just, I I, I think that the I get the sense that the situation is slightly different now. Um, than even even back then uh but uh um yeah i mean it's just it is you know like we, we, the political solutions that she talks about are seem so bleak i mean in that you yep. know maybe there is going to be maybe there is a way to do um to stop the the current violence uh at least the worst aspects of it but uh the ongoing settler colonial project um is one that um, seems almost impossible to stop without, you know, given the current world order. Um, It's just, yeah. Yeah, you know, what's happening to the Palestinians and also the international reaction to it, um, which overwhelmingly, and, and historically we've experienced this, has been more supportive of the Israeli side, Reminds me a lot of what happened to uh, Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, mm-hmm. where like, you know, we're talking about this tiny little country, Armenia, with obviously not on the same um, footing as uh, Azerbaijan, which is supported by, by the way, Israel was selling weapons to them. You have, uh, in some cases, yes, Russia was also selling weapons to them. Uh, They have all this might. Turkey, of course, backs them. And it was just being reported as if the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh are in the wrong because they have no power, right? And so one of the things that I was actually pretty shocked at how much it it affected me because, A, I'm not religious, and B, I'm, I'm Armenian, yes, but I was born in the United States. So, but when I saw, like, historic churches in Nagorno-Karabakh burned down by the Azeri military. It was one of the weirdest like reactions. Like I was heartbroken, couldn't stop sobbing. And it's Mm. because it's, it's part of our history, part of our identity. And then fast forward to what we've been seeing this week, you know, the Al-Aqsa mosque on fire. I don't know if you saw the video, but it was on fire and you see the Israelis like celebrating, like they're singing, they're dancing, they're having a great time while a portion of the mosque, this is the third holiest site 
for, um, you know, Palestinians just like celebrating. And it, it brought back memories <laughs> of what I felt like when I saw those historic churches in Nagorno-Karabakh burnt down. It's just vicious, incredibly yeah. vicious. And like the, the worst part is like the hopelessness, you know, like, and, and for someone who's in the United States watching all of this injustice go down, the helplessness, like yeah. you want to do something, but feel when she was compl- talking like about you can't the, do anything. When she was talking about the settler colonial project, I was reminded of, you know, I, I couldn't something that the United States is obviously a settler colonial project that, uh, you know, and, and the, um, the framing of the Native Americans throughout uh, America's expansion to the West and was of like these violent uh, people who were doing violence on us. Right. When it was obviously like the United, like the white settlers who were kind of encroaching upon them, harassing them, uh, taking over their land. And whenever the, the Native Americans fought back, it was seen as evidence that they were, you know, vile, evil people that needed to be uh, eliminated. Um, obviously, that happened in a in a time where that kind of thing was accepted and and it was it was OK. You know, no one felt really that bad about it. Um now in the 20th century, where, where Israel has been uh, sort of on doing its settler colonial project, they can't just do that. You know, they can't just like, you know, do what we did to the Native Americans, so that we find ourselves in this kind of situation where um, they there's this there's this situation there's this kind of ongoing thing that doesn't. I mean, it just goes it inches away very very slowly, very very slowly, but. But the but the project is the same. They just have to do use different means. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Kale, I don't know if you're feeling okay or if you can. Uh, oh wait, let me check this. Oh, there you are. Come on. Uh, Kale got his second dose of the vaccine, so um, it's working well right now. There we go. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm feeling good. it. Um, yeah. We're not good. Um, yeah, we're we're here. Um, there's a. This is the part of the show where we. Uh, take some questions live if you submit a question via super chat um a couple super chats already came in this one's not a question but just kind of echoing what nando was just saying that colonization is a crucial point israel is dominating palestine forcefully violently replacing a people and culture for another it's ironic the u.s a settler colonial state would sanction the violence um thank you for your your super chat um is another one um from rylan no question but um yeah, it's. Have you guys been to? Have you, either of you been to that part of the world to Israel, Palestine? No. Um, I, I went no. to Israel uh, in, in 2011, and um, it's it's a. I, I went to the border to the you know to the border of Gaza, and it's. I can't. I, I'll never forget the feeling that I had standing there, just looking at the Gaza Strip. It is so small. Like you could see the whole thing from it's like on a like there's a like a, a bluff in, on the Israel side it's like a little bluff and then you know Gaza's just down there and almost two million people live there the third most densely populated area of the world um, and just the thought that that little tiny strip of land which houses all these people is just being bombed by one of a, a modern military like a, a modern military machine. Um, is just it's to to think that this is like anything other than just a horrific act of aggressive violence is 
you you have to lie to yourself on on a level that I that I can't put myself in the brain of. You know, I can't I can't yep. imagine that. I mean, I've seen it. I've been there. You know, to think that there is like some level of proportionality in any in any way is absolutely crazy. Um, right. I mean, know. it's it's a it's an open air prison where half the inmates are children and yeah. like yeah. 95% of the drinking water is contaminated. Yeah. It's just... They have like, like two hours of electricity a day. Um, exactly. It's yeah. like... Just the... Yeah, the knots you have to tie yourself in to, to just like disregard the humanity of these people. And, and then what this situation does to people, where uh, any time that uh, Palestinians fight back or lash out... It's, you know, you know, we have to stop this threat. And it's these people are, are dying. These people are in, in one of the most horrific situations in human history. Yeah, it's it's just there's it's complete. They're taking out full families, like entire families, entire families. Like imagine being a parent who just found out that literally like every single one of your children and your wife was just killed. Like, just let that sink in. That's what's happening right now. Um Associated, I'm not making it up, Associated Press, Mohammed Hadidi told reporters his wife and five children had gone to celebrate um, the Eid holiday with relatives. She and three of the children ages 6 to 14 were killed while an 11-year-old is missing. Only his five-month-old son, Omar, is known to have survived. Um, I saw the video of him finding out uh, about that. And it's just, how does anyone stand by that? How does anyone just regurgitate the same talking point about no but they had to bomb that building because Hamas was hiding out in that building like it's every building apparently every single building every single bombing every single attack it's the same talking point regurgitated back to the people who find this behavior unconscionable disgusting violent criminal let's call it what it is call it what it is if this were happening in any other country under any other conflict, people would have no problem calling it what it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's there's just like a viciousness toward anyone who and, and a, a very clear effort to smear anyone who dare report the facts on the ground, share accurate commentary based on facts on what's happening on the ground. Like, it's just... And, but and the one thing that gives me a little bit of hope, very little, um, is that, yeah, the, like, rhetoric has changed a little bit in the United States. And mm. it's because you have some progressive lawmakers who are willing to call it what it is on the House floor. But other than that, I mean, what we've seen from the State Department is just disgusting. Anthony Blinken, who founded a think tank that, you know, did the propaganda of the Israeli government. Yeah, he's the Secretary of State. Yeah. Come on. Well, actually, so on this on this point, there's a super chat that we can directly tie into this, um, where they, uh, the questioner asks, or they say first that it's important and surprising that the squad, Bernie, and a few others gave speeches to support the Palestinians. Should they try to get Pelosi and Biden to condemn the war and end funding to Israel by threatening to withhold key votes? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll let you guys take that, I guess, first. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. The, the, I mean, it's it, it, Rashida Tlaib, who is, you know, who is 
a Palestinian herself. Her her speech on the congressional floor, uh, Congress floor was was very moving, um, and but it, I don't know that the squad has enough power to like actually. I mean, to actually force any sort of change from the Biden administration. I mean the the sort of counterbalance, the countervailing power on the other side is is so much more overwhelming um that i mean what are they this gonna, isn't a democrat versus republican thing yeah. like this is something that the fully bipartisan you know, democrat exactly so uh, it makes sense to withhold votes as a block if that block really ends up determining whether or not um the military funding gets to israel but they i don't think that they have that power specifically in this context like what right. maybe they can maybe they can withhold their votes to confirm Rahm Emanuel as <laughs> you know ambassador to japan or whatever they're 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 throwing him up for but like i don't think biden's going to change you know they're not going to change their tune significantly on this i mean that's been the 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 story of the Biden administration has been kind of surprising social spending at home, but like unbelievable hawkishness abroad. E- somewhat even surprising to to me um, because I remember the reporting from within the Obama administration at the time, um, which the Obama administration was comparatively dovish. I mean, I'm not saying that they were like doves and anything. I'm just saying comparatively um, to uh, other Democratic uh, administrations um, that Biden was considered one of the doves within the within the administration like Hillary was a hawk uh, um, and Biden was kind of the other person on his ear trying to talk him out of it um, but um, but he's been just an uh, just just horrifying horrifying on every level of foreign policy like I mean it's just it's just it's no different from the Trump from the Trump foreign policy like l- cosmetic differences at best um, yep Yep, 100%. I think to to just say a couple things on the question as well, I mean, my sense with a lot of this, as far as like what the left can do, either the left in government or the left outside of government, I mean, I think foreign policy is always tricky because there are so many crises going on that are facing working people and foreign policy is very, is very rarely at the top of their list. It's like when, when we actually get information on this, it's almost always wages and healthcare, which is why I think that's where a lot of the left should be prioritizing its time. Um, But when it comes to something like this, I think this is where the left should make the case as forcefully as possible to say, look at these horrific atrocities that are happening around the world and understand that the U.S. government is spending billions of dollars to participate in this, to, in some cases, lead in these efforts. And so it really just has to be a guns or butter issue to say, like, you want to talk about, like, government waste and government spending that goes towards like horrific causes here's like the our our, this is not a defense issue this is just a massive frontal assault and there this in some ways like there's not there's no better example than a situation like right now to say you we don't have universal health care in the united states actually the israelis do so uh, yeah. <laughs> they end up getting uh, we subsidize their military, but I mean there is exactly. a credible argument to be made that like yeah. the, the march to sort toward social democracy in the United States was halted by the Vietnam War. <laughs> you know that uh, you know that from the 1930s yeah. to the 1960s, the United States was kind of doing all these all kinds of domestic reforms to uh, you know build up a, a, a bigger welfare state, and that just kind of stopped in its tracks because um, of Vietnam. Um, also, so. I mean. When you think about the military spending that we do um, 
for for Israel. I mean, what do they do with that money? Like, where do you think they buy weapons from? It's, I mean, there's a whole industry in the United States that has literally a vested interest. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a transfer of money from U.S. taxpayers to defense contractors and military manufacturers. I mean, uh, weapons manufacturers. Like, it's it's all connected. I mean, everything that we experience on the ground here in the United States is tied in some way to our foreign policy. I mean, the militarized policing is as militarized as it is because we have a massive inventory of weaponry in our military, which gets, you know, sent off to local police departments across the country. Like, and... I, look, I think I think Americans have been for for a very long time conditioned to not care about foreign policy or not care about um, what's happening abroad, even if we're not involved in it, right? Like if you if you travel to any other country and you just talk to the locals there, they seem to have a pretty clear understanding about what's happening within the United States politically, right? But most Americans don't know what's happening in other countries, and there's a good reason for that. Ignorance is bliss. Make sure Americans don't know about what the United States is doing abroad, how much of our resources are spent, not on spreading democracy. I mean, that's the facade. That's the nonsense that gets sold to Americans. But in reality, uh, how our business interests play a role in us brutalizing and dehumanizing people across the globe. I just thought, but like that the American imperial project, what it does is when it destabilizes uh, regions, whether it's the Middle East uh, or Central America, creates social crises in those areas that create a a giant refugee crisis. And where do the refugees go? Well, they go to the rich countries, and which kind of creates a social crisis in the rich countries as well, because you know, it's, it's, they, they have a hard time assimilating uh, uh, all these people, you know, we've seen the effects of of the refugee crisis from Syria on the politics of Europe, which has just thrown it dramatically to the right, um, and and the effects of the social crisis in Central America created by the United States, and how it blows back towards uh, you know mass migration into the United States from that part of the world. So, like, you know, it, it's all obviously like all all this stuff is not like just some theoretical thing that is happening in a far off land it has direct effects even like it is even in our self-interest i mean there's i know um i know that there is some debate uh amongst kind of like left-wing foreign policy thinkers whether like the american empire was a net benefit to the average american or a net cost you know like because obviously there's there are benefits to empire you know um cheaper natural resources but whatever you know uh all that stuff but um I mean, I, I find it, I find it that, I mean, that it, it it seems pretty clear to me that overall, this kind of thing is not in our interest, that especially the experience of something like the British, um, which, you know, maintained an empire for a long time. And then once it unwound its empire um, after World War II, built up a welfare, like built up, got the NHS, you know, I don't know that you would got the NHS with empire. With the British Empire, um, so um, I'd probably rather be born as a regular schlub in in Britain in 1979 uh, than 1910, you know, or whatever, when it was like at the height of its powers. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'll I'll just weigh in very bluntly and say that I think Empire, both in the U.S. and 
wherever you have had kind of modern empire, it's been disastrous for the the domestic working classes. And it's for a number of reasons, but part of it is just that uh, it means that uh, capitalists in those domestic countries uh, are now operating at a global level when the working classes are stuck in their regional situations. And so now they're indirectly competing with one another uh, and, and capitalists, you know, they're going to, they're going to move their operations wherever it needs to be in order for them to make a profit. And, And wherever they get workers is, is not a big concern to them. It's just that they get the cheapest cost. And so, uh, it, it makes it more difficult for workers to organize collectively when, um, you know, within a, a given sector, say the uh, the leading capitalist in that sector um, has their operations in a, a different country. It's it's difficult then to link up those those workers even within one sector, let alone like working class broadly. This is where that the analysis that some people make about that the um, that the capitalist class wants open borders and that if you if you support some sort of, I'm not saying, you know, like open borders, but if you support kind of looser immigration restrictions, you are just doing the bidding of the capitalist class. That is exactly backwards. I'm sure there are capitalists who would like uh, uh, more flows of, of workers. But the reality is that in the eras of globalization, neoliberalism, borders have hardened, not uh, not gotten softer because of what you just said, that it, it's in their interest at the end of the day that capital be globalized whereas workers be localized (laughs) that makes perfect sense they could that's how they could do the race to the bottom that's how they could you know that's how they could force workers to compete with each other if there were looser worker flows um and it was easier for workers to move around um then it would increase their bargaining power i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's still very difficult and there are certain you know obviously like cultural and um you know people like to just stick to their roots and be at home and things like that but um, but if it were easier for workers to move around, it'd be, it'd be harder for capitalists to pit them against each other. It is, it is the exact opposite, uh, it, it, you know, that, of what, of what that kind of line of thinking is. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. Yeah. I mean, I, I will, I will add one more little thing to this discussion because, you know, something that even at the time was underreported, uh, when the 2003 Iraq war kicked off, we had some of the largest anti-war protests in human history all at once, yeah. both in the U.S. and around the world. And I remember them well, Kale. You were 12. <laughs> Not, you were like eight, you know. <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. Um, but, um, uh, but like, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, in some ways, it's, it's a massive human achievement um, because these were people protesting something that wasn't directly affecting them. They didn't necessarily have like an immediate stake in these. And that the entire these. media was, was in favor of. Like, I'm not yeah. like, this is like, yeah, people don't remember this shit, but like the entire media, any dissenting voice was silenced. I mean, they, yeah. Slate just did a piece yep. that I read and I, because it was like, I mean, it, you know, I remember it. Uh, I remember that time very well. But Slate just did a piece about the liberals who supported the Iraq war. And man, it is it is it is great to just go through like a who's who. Uh, <laughs> Bill Keller, the editor of the New York Times uh, at mm-hmm. one point, editor in chief of the New York Times at one point before he became editor in chief, um, was part of something uh, so part of something called the I can't believe I'm a hawk club, <laughs> you know, to support to support the war. The entire media like yeah. 
I remember when Phil, when Phil Donahue uh, um, yes, came out against it. Yes, that's what I was going to bring up, yeah. Phil Donahue. He was gone. Mm-hmm. Fire. This guy was – Phil Donahue was like a big-time uh, television host, like daytime talk show host for a while. Like, you know, big, successful, been on TV forever. Um, all of a sudden, gone, poof, magically disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these people who supported the war – are, have been rewarded handsomely from Jeffrey Goldberg, who now edits The Atlantic, who wrote a cover story saying that Saddam Hussein had ties to al-Qaeda and was linked to 9-11. I mean, it should be just absolutely disqualifying for any journalistic career. Um, now, I mean, look at Brian Williams. Brian Williams is another example, right? To like where he might get a little slap on the wrist when he's, when he's caught literally lying yeah. <laughs> to his audience about his involvement in things. Um, yeah. But he gets his job back, he right? Like he's back. now big host uh, yeah. because he loves those big, beautiful bombs. Yeah. You know? I mean, they are I am reminded of Leonard Cohen. Uh, <laughs> and I am awed by the beauty of our weapons. Um, as we bomb children in the most defenseless areas on the planet. Um, uh, honestly, folks, this is this is a beautiful sight to see. Reporting live on NBC News, here I am, Brian Williams. It's pretty good. It's a good it's Williams. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. Anyway, the just the I guess I guess my ultimately I think the point of bringing up the. Uh, the protests in 2003 is just that I think it does actually illustrate the fact that people can truly be in the masses. They can truly be altruistic and they can be compassionate for something like uh, just a horrific, unnecessary and brutal, violent, uh, oppressive, uh, like just domination of, of a people that um, are completely outmatched. Uh, so in this case, you know, this was the, you know, the American invasion of Iraq uh, under false pretenses. And now, of course, I mean, I, I really do think that, you know, things are changing and maybe not as quickly, certainly not as quickly as they as they need to be. But the left should take opportunities like what's going on right now to to make the humanitarian case, the, you know, the um, just the case that these these are human beings who are being decimated and, and deserve uh, rights and freedoms like anyone else, genuine rights and freedoms. Um, because obviously I know the part of the whole bullshit logic of going into Iraq was like, we're going to give them freedom, but like truly ha- like create a world where people are, you know, they control their own destinies. They have enough resources to live good lives. And, um, and so I, I think this is a moment where, you know, the left can take this opportunity to make that case right now. And, and again, put it in terms of, um, you know, this is, this is at your expense, like these horrific images we're seeing on the news right now. This is directly at your expense because this is what our budget goes to and not healthcare and not, uh, you know, uh, uh, housing, not education, not childcare, um, not college. So this is, um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see what happens, but this, I don't know, this whole, this whole week has been just so horrific. So horrible. Awful. Absolutely awful. Um, yeah. Just a, here's another, this is a nice super chat from Patrick who says we're doing a good job and um, thinks that Anna will be a wonderful mother if she chooses to be. I Thank agree. You. Thank Anna you. Anna would Patrick. be an incredible mother. I would, any baby would be blessed to have you as a mother. <laughs> I'd be, I'd um, Thank you. I, I, th- um, I would definitely be a tiger mom, but not like on my own children. Just like in terms of, that's one of the other things about my decisions so far like i'm terrified like i don't know how parents stay calm 
when their kids are like there were some yeah, anti-maskers like if, if, like who were like harassing children or if your who kid came home one day with like a black guy and it's like johnny beat me no, up no i mean the, i just uh, you just murder their murder his parents <laughs> <laughs> like my my mom's from the old school and luckily back in the day things weren't as well you couldn't capture things on on a phone for instance on video so i remember my mom when i was in third grade caught one of the male students in my class slapped my ass as i was waiting for her to pick me up she got out of the car she stopped the car in the middle of the street got out of the car with a rolling pin and started chasing after the boy uh, luckily didn't ca- get him, <laughs> but like the, the that's the kind of, the of mom I would ride, be probably. You know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like, uh, it's in my genes. What can I say? I love that, you know, Armenian moms, they just be carrying rolling pins in the car just in case. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like, you're going to have just, one too. <laughs> just in the glove compartment. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's instead of jeans. a gun, it's a rolling pin. Or, or just pulling it pulling it out from uh, her ankle. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. She just has it like in her pants. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a couple other super chats. I missed one by from JL that said, "Thank you, great work, another fantastic episode." And Patrick says, "Great show," and recommends people check out Gaza Fights for Freedom. Um, thank you for all the super chats. We really appreciate them. Um, and I need to lay down or something. Go rest. I'm, Get out of here. I'm Kale. destroyed. Yeah. Go rest. So, please hit like. Please hit subscribe. Go watch, go watch 2001: A Space Odyssey. <laughs> No, don't watch it. Don't no, do it's it. Good. God damn it, Nando. We'll talk about God. it in a later show. We'll... Now you have to watch it. Was it was awful. Kale. It was one of the worst movies, if not the worst movie Wrong. I've ever seen. The I'm worst. just going to say. It was the worst. Wrong. And like Nando, by the way, Nando is like such a nice guy because I remember when we were talking about like which Stanley Kubrick movie should I watch next? That title kept coming up and Nando, like I could just tell, like you weren't as enthusiastic about it compared to like... I don't know the other movies we were talking. It's about. It's just not as accessible. Um, so you would. It's, it's like it's like I know that I know that like you have to be like in the right headspace to 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 enjoy it on some level. That it's work. It's not like fun in a way. It's you know it's not. It was like, it was not fun. Yeah. No, you're you're yeah. kicking me when I'm sick right now. This is yeah. That's I the, know, that's my Kale. favorite thing to we, do. We, I we like should to talk bully about Kale. it though. Yeah. Although we should talk about it in a, in a future show because I am curious, like what your takeaway was. My takeaway right. was I should throw my remote across the room at, on the during the final scene. Like that's what my <laughs> takeaway was. Um, anyway. for, for the record, my mom in the chat says that she agrees with you. So oh, you thank you. Your mom gets it. She gets yep. it. This is, anyway. this is a very divisive issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got to go. Kale, thank you. You're a rock star. I know you're not feeling well, and you still managed to produce this this incredible show. It's so get some rest. you guys. And thank you. Thank you. And everyone else, um, have a great weekend. Um, again, solidarity for all the people who are fighting for all the right reasons. Um, and, you know, just make sure that you reject the mainstream media narrative on these types of conflicts because you're not going to get the full picture of what's going on. Nando, any final words before we go? No, just, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, don't listen to what the to what they tell you about it. They're they're lying to you. Um, trust your trust your eyes. You know, they're not lying to you mm-hmm. when you see those images. Trust your eyes, you know, that. They're they're trying to do is get you to stop thinking, to stop using your own brain. Um, but you can see what's going on. Just if you see the images, trust trust your eyes. 
All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.